Where's Missy? Missy! Where's Missy? Sorry, Mac, they haven't seen her. Missy! Missy! I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Possible suspect sighting. Ground teams found the truck in the mountains. I'm really sorry, Mr. Phelps. You need some help over there? I'm okay. I'll have some dinner tonight. Give me next time. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. We've lost so much already. I don't want to lose you too. Showed up in my mailbox with no tracks in the snow. You're not thinking about going back there, are you? I gotta do something. You know, this isn't a good idea. It's crazy. This is all I got. Got a fire going inside if you want to warm up. Mackenzie Allen Phillips. I've been looking forward to this. Do I know you? Not very well, but we can work on that. Right there, you just heard uh, the trailer for the movie The Shack, which is the movie that I am going to review, analyze, whatever you want to call it, um, for this day of the Key Row Film Society. I've not recorded one of these podcasts for quite for a little bit of little while. Um, for whatever reason, it is a movie that seems to be stirring up popularity again. It came out a year ago. And March, as it is a time that there seems to be a lot of Christian movies that come out, um, the popularity seems to come up. And I think part of it is because it's, um, I think I've seen it available on a number of streaming sites, um, such as Amazon or, um, and others. And so people are re-watching it and revisiting it. And so I think it would be a good time to look at this movie that is based on a very popular book that sold over 22 million copies. Um, so it's an extremely popular book. So uh, the movie, like I said, it came out about a year ago. And here's the thing I got to first get off the bat here. So when it comes to movies, when it comes to television, um, there's there are two extreme. There's a way that we we approach it, and there's really two extremes that people tend to go, and really should be in somewhere in the middle. So a lot of people, when it comes to movies and television, they either a almost forbid any movie that is explicitly Christian, 
And unless it's explicitly Christian, don't watch it. Avoid it at all costs. The other extreme is to say, well, it's just entertainment. Uh, who cares what it says? It doesn't matter. It's just entertainment. It's just for fun. Neither of those views are very helpful. Um, <clears throat> absolute cutting out anything that is not explicitly Christian, it leads to two different things. And one, it, the first trapping is it kind of teaches us this idea that we are to exclude things that are not with a worldview that we find acceptable. And that's not really good practice, and it's not even Christian. Christ, the, Jesus says that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. So in other words, we're not to absorb the way of the world. We're not supposed to absorb these conflicting worldviews, but we are supposed to be in this world. We're supposed to be interacting with the world. It's not us against the world. It's us in the world, but not of it. All right? Look at the way Jesus is. He doesn't... Jesus interacts with the Greeks. He interacts with the Pharisees. He interacts with all sorts of people. However, he is not of this world. He is in it. So that is, you know, that is the model. That's the example of the way we are to be. So we are, we do engage the culture. We engage the world, but we are not of it. And so we are not to absorb the culture's ideas. But on the flip side is if we turn it into just entertainment and we think that it's not saying anything, we kind of become susceptible to its worldviews anyways. This is how um, propaganda film artists work. Like especially during Nazi Germany under the Soviet Union, they pre created movies, television, um, radio programming um, with the purpose of that were designed to make people think a certain way that is called manipulation and that's movies television art has the power to do that so we don't want to go into the two those extremes rather we are to be somewhere in the middle we watch movies with a discerning eye we <clears throat> we watch movies we can enjoy it but we also don't throw away caution. We pay attention to it. We pay attention to the ideas that are presented. And I bring this up, I say this, because one of the things I find is whenever a movie has anything that's even the slightest of Christian, slightest reference to God, we throw our discernment radar out the window. When in reality, whenever they're talking about our faith, um, our discernment radar should be on full blast. It should be stronger there than it should even be in a secular movie. Because in many secular movies, they have no intent to make any con talk about anything about God. And so the likelihood of them teaching something falsely about our Lord is slimmer it does happen but it's not as much they might talk falsely about something else but a lot of times they really don't deal dive into god and sometimes a lot of those secular movies say something about god without meaning to um which though it does show we should keep our discernment radar on there 
The pro but with Christian movies, they are explicitly trying, or movies that talk about God are explicitly trying to tell you something about God. And so for that reason, because they're trying to teach you about the faith, you need to be asking the question, what are they trying to teach us? What are they trying to communicate? All right. So um, I bring this up because, and <clears throat> and by the way, somebody, one of the reactions a lot of times I get is people will say, well, well, at least, you know, that's, they don't have swearing or violence and all that stuff. Well, here's the problem with that, which you just let me know is that you think that um, swearing is a greater sin than um, her than teaching about another god as if he's the true god. And I, and I say this because <clears throat> in relationship to the shack, because we're going to get to in a little bit that I'm going to argue say that the shack does not present the Christian god. And I'm straight up telling you that. And if you think that swearing is a greater sin than that, you have severe problems in your theology. Because swearing is forgivable. Very, very, very much so. If it wasn't, we'd all be doomed. Believing in another God cuts you off from all forgiveness. If you do not have God, if you do not have the one true God, even the sin of the littlest, tiniest swear word is, can't be forgiven. That's why this one, the one that rejects, that follows after a false God, is far greater. This is why we should be so heavily concerned with what movies present. Alright, so... The whole movie, The Shack, the story is of this man, played by Sam Worthington. Uh, his name um, is Mackenzie, Mac, as he's called. He, his, he experiences incredible tragedies in his life. He grows up, growing up, his father was an alcoholic. He was abusive, and even though he was an elder of the church. Um, later... Uh, we find out, and then as he grows older, he becomes a, a father of three kids. He's got two daughters and a son. And one night, one day, weekend, they decide to go out and go camping and fishing and all that stuff. And one thing leads to another, and his little girl, the sweet, cute little girl, is kidnapped. And she, and then eventually... Um, her remains are found and you find that she was murdered um, by this man who's murdered multiple girls. And so, and then, so he's really burdened by this as one can understand emotionally. It's just a powerful, very impactful beginning. It's very, um, you can't help but not feel the depth of that tragedy. Um, but anyways, he, one day he gets a little letter in the car that says, go to this shack, the shack where they found the remains of his daughter. He goes there, 
And um, he is, event, when, and then again, he's led to another, to this place along of the lake, which happens to be the place where he meets Papa, um, who is this African-American woman who is God. And there is, he also meets um, a Jewish man who is Jesus. And he meets uh, an Asian woman who is the Holy Spirit. And so what progresses is this whole conversation between the three persons of God, of, the God, of God, and he's learning about faith in dealing with um, his struggles, his struggle with the loss of his daughter, the struggle with his anger, his anger at God, his anger at himself, and things of that sort. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna start with because I've upfront told you I'm not I don't I'm not a fan of this movie. For what and but I'm before I do that I'm gonna get into I'm gonna deal with what is good in it. The thing that the strong points in this movie is it does the character Mac like I said he's struggling to forgive. Specifically, the guy that did, that murdered his daughter. And understandable, that is an incredibly difficult evil um, to forgive someone of. If somebody did that to someone that I loved and cared for, I'd have a heck of a time forgiving too. And so, and the reality is that most of us, we carry sins against us that are much smaller than that and we have troubles forgiving it and in the movie in the movie you see it being compelled that um this man is being compelled to so this mac is being compelled to um, forgive this man for what he has done. And I think that is, you know, that's great message. And it is a tough thing to forgive people when they've wronged us severely. And so I applaud that concern. Um, and I'd say that's, but the thing is that, and of course, dealing with anger um, is another issue in there. Which is very much closely connected. Uh, but here's the thing is, so that's pretty much the strength of the movie. The movie at the outset seems like it's got a good story, but at the end, it feels a little bit like uh, what dreams may become. I think it's called um, a Robin Williams movie. Very um, Eastern mysticism, very much playing into the movie. Um, but... What really is the problem of this movie is quite extensive, and it comes from the fact is that William Paul Young, who wrote the book, does not have a worldview that is consistent with Christianity. And this worldview comes really, really early on. The little girl in the movie, the one that ends up being killed, asks a couple good questions really 
And they're questions that he, Mac, doesn't understand. And it's this first question I'm going to bring up, I don't think the movie really answers, to be honest. Um, it's a, the question was, if God is always with us, why does he care if we go to church? Question could be asked. How would you answer that? Why does God care if we go to church if he is with us always? And I'm going to come back to this question. The movie does not answer this question, but I'm going to come back to it. And the second question she asked, and this is a good question again. He made Jesus He made Jesus die on the cross, referring to God the Father that he made Jesus die on the cross? Again, how would you answer that question? So this is major points. And so when he gets to the gets to this shack in this beautiful lush green grass area along this beautiful lake in the mountains of Oregon, I think it probably is. He visits, he's talking with her, and it's pretty early on. He's asking, like, why would you, you don't, but why would you let my girl die? He asked this question. It's the, it's the classic question of um, the problem of evil. It says, you are everywhere. You know all, you know everything. Why did you let my girl die? This is the classic question, the classic problem of evil. And it's put it into, a, so basically the classic problem of evil is, if God is all powerful, if he is everywhere, if he knows everything, why is there evil in the world? So if there's evil in the world, he must either not be all-powerful, he must not be everywhere, or he must not know everything. Or he's not good. So those are, that's the classic argument in regards to the problem of evil. And here in the movie, he asks that question, and he makes it very personal. And it's a good, and again, good question. The question, though, is this movie brings good questions. I ain't going to deny that. The problem is, how does the movie answer these questions? And so, he confronts Papa, the father. And by the way, I want you to, I'm going to get a straw man argument out of the way. A straw man argument, if you don't, under, don't know, it's a logical fallacy where people will say that you don't like this because of this even though you've never made an argument of the sort. So um, about a year ago when the movie came out, I made the point that I didn't, I was not a fan of my disapproval of the movie The Shack because it presents a false god. And right away the person, react, somebody responded and said, well, you don't like it because they make God into a black woman. And to which I said, that is a straw man fallacy. Because I never said that. That was not my problem. You assumed that was the problem because you're probably projecting your politics. Uh, projecting your own biases. That is not the problem. All right? God, there is reason to... For one, does skin color is irrelevant. Skin color... The only thing, skin color, I've talked about this with other people before, and people get annoyed by it, 
and don't like it. But I kind of, I'm kind of an old school when it comes to race. I'm kind of, I love, I always go back to uh, Martin Luther King's infamous speech. Uh, I have a dream that one day my four little children will grow up in a nation where they are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. In other words, skin color has nothing to do with the quality of a person. Okay? Um, skin color just has to do with your ability to ab absorb sunlight. It's just a biological thing. I can't help but go approach skin color from the standpoint of biology, basic science. The reason why two multiple people who happen to have the same skin color happen to have similar experiences is because, not because of their skin color, but because those who have the same skin color tend to originate from similar places. And because you originate from similar places, you naturally have a similar experience. It's logical, but it's not the skin color that's the common denominator. The, the common denominator is your place of origin, not skin color. We put too, so much emphasis on skin color rather than on your culture, your location. All right? And so I have no problem with the skin color. I mean, and the other thing is, and again, going to the women, woman part, there are images in the Bible which can speak to God being a woman. It does use that imagery. Now, it spends a lot more time with him as Image's father, which, again, actually I will say that the movie probably is projecting its own worldview by the fact that the that, although um, uh, might be projecting its own worldview, but there might be a reason behind it. I'll admit that there is something to be said about the fact that majority of the movie, the that God the Father is portrayed as a woman. Um... But again, this is not entirely problematic because, like I said, the Bible does portray, does talk about him as a mother. Um, but again, this might also be because, be because of the fact that he had a poor relationship with his own earthly father. And so, God, so Papa portrays himself as a mother. Um, part of me thinks that by the end of the movie, he should be a father because... He reconciles with his father, to, and he comes to terms with him, and so, um, and then he should be at ease with a god, the father, as opposed to a god, the mother. But you know that's not really my issue. That's that's really a small issue, a small thing. Uh, it could be discussed, but it's not a real major issue. Here is a major issue. This is the part where right up very early in the movie, very early in its representation of papa um do we get this idea this um problem of the what kind which god they are presenting um and that is that the father so he's talking to the father he says i've heard that story my god my god why have you forsaken me so he's asking, you know, you abandoned your son on the cross. And this is a dynamite moment. Theologically, if this question came, if, if 
An Orthodox Christian had that question passed on to them. Oh, good, 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 and good question. Good moment. Another one of those good questions. The movie does this. And I ain't going to lie. The movie brings good questions. The problem isn't with the questions. The problem is with its answers. And so the answer is, the answer could have been, well, I didn't force him. I didn't make him go to the cross. And so this is, and it does say that he chose to be on the cross, but does it talk about why he was there? Instead, it says, we were there together. I never left him, I never left you. That's the response. But he didn't leave him. God the Father did leave the Son on the cross. He did abandon him. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus can't lie. He said it right there on the cross. It is recorded in two of the Gospels. It is a prophecy from Psalm 22. So to say that he didn't abandon him is to make Jesus into a liar. And so in order to get himself out of the possibility of Jesus being a liar, he decides that the Father was also crucified, which is why you see in a, in a moment he shows the wounds, or she, Papa, shows the wound in the wrist from the crucifixion, suggesting that she, the Father was crucified with the Son, but he wasn't. This is what we call, this is a form of Unitarianism, or a form of modalism, more, or probably better termed modalism, in that the Father is God, God, the Father is the Son, the Son is the Father, the Father is the Holy Spirit. That there, it's No, this is where you need to go back to your, this is why, we read the Athanasian Creed every Trinity Sunday. Um, is because So you don't get this fall into this trapping that the Father is the Son and the Father is the Holy Spirit or the Son is the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons. They weren't both crucified. Only Jesus was crucified. The Holy Spirit wasn't crucified. Only Jesus was crucified. And I know we are diving into the depths of the Trinity, which, yes, we cannot comprehend. But here he creates a major problem. And I say he, the writer, not um, Papa, female Papa. Um, she, it's not her that's creating the problem. The writer creates this problem by making it that God the Father was crucified with Jesus. So right here, right now, you have been introduced to a false god. All right, this is, so the false god here is not that she's a woman, not that she's black. The false god is that it is not the triune god, which is confessed in scripture. That is, right off the bat, there's a major problem. And which means the answer to this really good question is not a good answer. Rather, it's actually heresy. It is, a, it is an answer 
that if you believe it, puts you outside of the Christian faith and puts you outside of salvation. This is a greater sin than any curse word in any movie. Because it is the one that wipes out the possibility of all forgiveness. All right? So this is what this is what William Paul Young says in regards to the crucifixion. This is for him, William for Young, he actually did a book um recently a few um Somewhat re back in 2000, uh, I got trying to find when the I don't know the year of the book, but there's a book that he wrote. It's called Lies We Believe About God. And one of the lies we believe about God is that God, that the cross, the crucifixion was God's idea. <clears throat> this is why I'm actually, this is kind of one of those reasons why I am doing this on Good Friday, is because this book just destroys the message of Good Friday. And William Paul Young does not believe the scriptural meaning behind Good Friday. He calls the cross, says the cross was not God's idea. He calls it a lie. He believes to do so would be to make God a cosmical abuser or cruel and monstrous. See, the problem is that with that is that Isaiah 52 verse 13 to 53 verse 12 the the suffering servant is a prophecy regarding the crucifixion of Jesus and there is a multitude of prophecies in the Old Testament showing that God planned for it that he that he placed the chastisement of our sins upon him, upon Jesus. But here is the problem, and he does, he does, the author gets it right that it was Jesus' choice to be on the cross. But he doesn't get um, why he was there. And he does not get that it was God's plan for it to happen. That God allowed for it to happen. Psalm 22, again, another really lengthy prophecy regarding the crucifixion. It was very much, if you hold to the Bible being true, it was in God's plan. And so, um, there's, again, he's kind of dealing with suffering. It talks about that you you would you like a life without suffering and he says it doesn't exist that's true it doesn't exist and I again um good moments that's one of those good moments those good points but again like I said <coughs> excuse me the ongoing problem in the movie is again the questions are good the answers are bad and, and it all revolves around the lack of the cross. The lack of the theology of the cross. And the theology of the cross is the heart of our faith. It's the heart of everything. It's the heart of salvation. 
It is the answer to almost everything that's asked. So let's go back to that question of the girl. He made Jesus die on the cross. Did he make Jesus die? No, he didn't. John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. No one takes it down for me. I take it down of my own accord. All right. So it's of his own will that Jesus dies on the cross. And notice the good shepherd. Jesus teaching about I am the good shepherd is, the answer, is actually the answer to the entire question. The entire question of the movie. He is acknowledging that there is a wolf out there seeking to devour his sheep. To devour us. To destroy us. He is acknowledging the evil that is out there. So, you know, he struggles with this whole thing. And the very the key, the marquee moment of the movie is he's in this cave. And he sits on the seat. He meets a woman called Wisdom. And they kind of like that. That's a, that's a play on Proverbs, um, reference to Lady Wisdom. However, if you read Proverbs, you actually learn that Lady Wisdom is Jesus, but the second person in the Trinity. But, you know, I'm going to let, not a big issue there. So he's talking with her. And he is faced, he's asking this thing. It's like, so who should be forgiven? You know, you know, who should vengeance be poured upon? Kind of question. And he, she presents all these different people. And I like this. This is actually, again, this is good questions. These are good points. And they are good at hitting at sin. And this is the thing is, is the move, this is where the movie does not go, the story doesn't go far enough. But it asks these good questions. and asks, what about this person? What about that person? And it kind of tries, it gets you to sympathize. He talks about his father. He says, definitely. But what about this boy who was abused? He says, I say, yes. Well, that is your father, who also was abused by his father. And so, you know, he there's those type of questions. Good. Again, good questions. And trying to get you to understand why is a person do this. And again, it's not to excuse the person. And I know he's trying to get, she's trying to get Mac to forgive people. To forgive these people. But one of the things why I say it doesn't go far enough is because what the movie should have done is turned it on Mac. And to lead Mac to see that he himself is wretched. He himself is a sinner. And I, I think he's carrying some guilt, but he doesn't think he's as bad as other people. Listen to what Romans 3 says. It says, as it is written, it says, What then? Are we better, we Jews, any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, right there is this charge is scripture that we, all of us, myself included, are wretched. That we are not better off than that murderer. The sin that infects them infects us as well. And I know it's hard to see, but, you know, I, I'm a person, so I talk about, I began to talk about pop culture, about other secular movies, but I think sometimes secular movies get this. And there are movies that get this understanding that we are all just as bad as the next person. And I guess maybe that sympathizing, empathizing that the movie tries to create is kind of getting there. That these people are who they are. They are what they are because of their experience. Because of what they were taught. And kind of carrying the reality that we, all of us, are no better. I th- I can't help but think of the one of the most infamous Batman graphic novels. It's called The Killing Joke. It's a controversial one because of just how dark it goes. And you have this character, the Joker, who, if you know Batman, you know who the Joker is. He's just absolutely evil. And he does these horrible things in in the and but through the course you find out his backstory. That he was, he had this really, really awful day that involved the murder of his wife, who's pregnant, with her, his, his child, and him falling into a vat of acid. And that is what led him to being the Joker. And so the whole mo- the whole story is about him proving to Batman that every human being, every person is one really bad day from being like him. And the reality is, is there's truth to that. And I believe that the shack was stepping into that truth. It was there. It was almost there at that point. But, and I think it was trying to get to that, but it did not go far enough to turn it in on Mac. Well, Mac gets, and then so Mac is confronted with this question. He has two people. He has his his daughter and his son. Both of them are not very good right now. And so he asks Mac, and so Wisdom asks Mac, which one should go to hell? Your son or your daughter. He says, I can't make that choice. I can't choose one or the other. And eventually he gets to the point where he says, 
Take me instead. Take me. And Lady Wisdom goes says to him, Now you know Papa's love. But here's where the move again. The movie comes short because it doesn't tell you that God actually see what it does is it's actually going into go it it, it it's actually you you think that it's pointing to the cross and I think sometimes we as Lutheran we as if you're an Orthodox Christian you might naturally implant that answer in for yourself but that's not what the book is doing the movie is going to the universalism answer. Because this is what William P. Young, William Paul Young, who wrote the book, says. He says, the good news is not that Jesus has opened up the possibility of salvation and you have been invited to receive Jesus into your life. The gospel is that Jesus has already included you into his life, into his relationship with God the Father, and into his anointing in the Holy Spirit. The good news is that Jesus did this without your vote, and whether you believe it or not won't make it any less or more true. So are you suggesting that everyone is saved? That you believe in universal salvation? That is exactly what I am saying. So this actually goes with a, a quote, another quote in the movie where um, there's this line from Papa. She, she says to uh, Mac, you are imagining a future without me and that future does not exist. One might think, again, you might be supplanting, supplementing your own worldview and thinking that he means, she means that... Um, if you, you're not with me, you have no future. No, no, what he's saying, what she is saying is that you have me whether you want me or not. Whether you believe in me or not, I am in your future. This is what we call universalism, that all people are saved, no matter what. And this is kind of a reaction to um, the Calvinist double predestination. See, in the Calvinist tradition, they have what is a, a doctrine that's known as tulip. Um, and sometimes you'll hear about Calvinists, the five-point Calvinists. And what they're referring to is the five points of tulip. So the five points of Calvinism, tulip, is what it's called. So it begins, T stands for total depravity. In other words, that every man is sinful from nature. This is something that, as a Lutheran, um, I could get behind. We are born totally depraved. We are born enemies of God. Ephesians 2 confesses this, that we are born children of wrath. And by the way, this, and I'm going to come to this, and this is, by the way, another issue in this movie where he asks, so is this where the wrath of God comes? And she goes, wrath? What are you talking about? And so she acts all... Um, sus suspicious, like she has no idea what wrath is, that God doesn't have wrath. No, that is, again, that puts a huge swaths of scripture, it throws huge portions of it out. God is definitely portrayed as having wrath all throughout the scriptures. 
you have to throw out a large amount of the Bible in order to say he has no wrath. Okay, but it does go there that he has no wrath. He does. What it, and, and I'm going to get to that more. There's going to, and that's going to, I'm going to come back to that again more. So, but anyways, T is total depravity. We are sinful. U, unconditional election. That God chooses his children for salvation unconditionally. There's, there's nothing you do for your salvation. Again, I could get on board on this. But this is where it begins to where we begin to disagree. Limited atonement. In other words, that Jesus died for some, but not for all. The problem with this past that belief is John chapter 2, where it says that Jesus' atonement was for the, the sins of the whole world. Which, and by the way, this seems to agree with the view of the shack, but we're going to come back to that. Irresistible grace. That, is, that nobody can resist God's grace. They cannot reject him. That's number three. Number four, sorry. The I, irresistible grace that you cannot reject. Salvation. All right? And then, finally, the preservation of the saints. Um... Preservation of the saints, or I was going to say the perseverance of the saints, or preservation of the saints. Um, this is the idea that no one, if you are saved, you'll never um, fall out of salvation. So much of Paul Young, William Paul Young's theology is a reaction to this. I think a large part of it is a reaction to this, that God died for only some. And he is right to react to that, because that is not there are problems with that in the Bible, because we do have. So we have in the Bible, you can't deny. Don't you cannot deny that God has predestination in regards to salvation and hold to the scriptures. All right, um, Ephesians chapter one says that God chose us to be holy and blameless in His sight before the foundations of the world. So He predestined us in love. So Scripture said talks about predestination. Well, Calvin, and this is where Tulip comes out of, the Calvinist looks at that verse and says, well, logically, if God chooses some for salvation, then he must be choosing people for condemnation. The problem with that is that... Um, the problem with that logic is that we also have verses where it says... That God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or that God does not desire the death of a sinner. Or, and so, if God does not desire people to be condemned, desires all people to be saved, it would not make sense for him to, not, to, to go against them being saved. So, if you believe that he chooses some for salvation, some for hell. Why would he say, well, I want you to be saved, but go to hell? That, that doesn't make sense. And it goes with that, you know, the, the shack actually here, they get a good point. That both, that all people, all human beings are God's creations and he loves all people. For God so loved some people? No, God so loved the world. The whole world, every man, 
woman and child. From the most vile to the seemingly most innocent. But as I just said, none of us are actually innocent. None of us are good. But he loves them all. Every last one of them. And so it would not make sense for him to choose someone he loves to go to hell. Okay? Now, the, the Arminian, the way they answer this problem is say, well, uh, then you, the choice is up to you. You choose condemnation. You choose salvation. But that's not right either. See what, and I think, again, I think that the shack Maybe trying to answer scripture where it says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. They see that. So if God doesn't want people to be condemned, if God doesn't, and if God chooses us for salvation, then obviously the answer must be that all people are saved. That must be the answer. And so, but the problem is, is we have Jesus' own words. The Gospel of John is very much one that stands out in this regard. Um, John, I mean, there's obviously John 14 where he says, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But listen to this. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He is the truth. Jesus is the truth. And the shack got that one right. I I'm, I like that. It got it. It says, the truth is a person. He's out in the barn. So referring to the guy that's supposed to be Jesus. So yes, Jesus is the truth. So when we say, we, are, we worship in spirit, those who worship me will worship in spirit and in truth. That means they're worshiping in the Holy Spirit and they're worshiping in Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the truth. But Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. <coughs> I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came, <clears throat> not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? 
If I tell the truth, who do you not, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So basically here, Jesus is hitting it, that hitting hard, very hard, that if you do not believe in him, there is no salvation. In fact, the entire reason the Gospel of John is written is told at the end of chapter 20. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you may have eternal life. The, obviously, the opposite is, is that if you don't believe in him, and the Gospel of John lays this out multiple times, and all the Gospels, Jesus talks about this. I long for your salvation. Paul talks about this. I, if, I would willingly send myself to hell if it meant the salvation of my brethren. It's all throughout Scripture that those who reject Jesus as the Christ... That they, those who reject the one true God, there is no salvation. It's all throughout Scripture. All right? And so, um, the answer is, that, the answer isn't that God doesn't, that people, that some people aren't condemned. That is not the answer. So we go back to this. This dilemma in the shack, the, that Mac is given the choice between his son and his daughter. See, what you don't, what the, the shack doesn't go to is the answer that Scripture gives. The answer that is given in Romans 5. For while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. We're going back to that Romans chapter 3. Towards the end of the passage, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you see, when Jesus, our Lord, he see, our God, he does see Mac, you know, if there's a real Mac, the hypothetical real Mac and the hypothetical real murderer. They are both sinners. They are both on the same standing and separated from God. And this is something that Paul, William Paul, um, you know, the author does not believe that we are separated from God, even though um, Scripture says that we are separated from Him. Isaiah 58 speaks to this straightforward. That we are separated from God. Okay? Um, and so, but the reality is, is that we are, in our sinful nature, we are separated from him. We stand on the same terms as the murderer, as the terrorist, as the rapist. We are on the same level as them. We are not good. We are separated from God. So we have all, for, so it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's where verse 24 goes. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, like Mac, 
said, I will put myself in my place of my children. That's what Jesus did. When Jesus was on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <coughs> this wasn't a, a question like he doesn't understand. It was more rhetorical. He understood. He was letting the crowds know that at that moment, Jesus was damned. Jesus was willingly damned. And understand, yes, he was sent by the Father. But he, the, fa- the will of the Father and the will of the Son is one. They have one will and souls of spirit. The Trinity don't have three different wills. They have one will. They're united in purpose. And the scriptures, again, shows the determination that Jesus is in control of everything that happens. See, he went to the cross, and there he was damned by God. He took hell. He was condemned is the greatest sinner of all time because he took on your sin. This isn't divine child abuse. This isn't God, Jesus. This is, see, somebody, it is him standing in the way of the bullet that is destined for you, destined for me. That's what the cross is, is Jesus standing in the way of the punishment that is ours, the punishment that we deserve. He took upon himself willingly that you, he was the payment, he was the debt that atoned for your sin. See, that's the answer to all of these questions. Why do we, he made Jesus die on the cross? No, Jesus did it of his own will. If God is always with us, why does he care if we go to church? He cares because when you go to church, through the proclamation of the word, through the receiving of the Lord's Supper, You receive his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. You receive his gifts. That's why he cares. It is indeed because he loves you. See, in the movie it talks about, you know, wrath. What's that? No, he has wrath. God has wrath. But he poured it out. On his son. He poured all of it on his son. Who willingly took it. Of his own will. That you may not take it. Because all people are his children. So here comes the question. The classic question. Why are some people condemned then? For William Paul Young, the answer is that no one is condemned. All are saved. It is impossible to be separated from God. That there is no condemnation. There is no hell. 
See, the reason why someone is condemned is because they say to God, no, I don't believe, I don't want your bloody salvation. Literally, I don't want it. The reason is because they rejected him. See, there are two people in this world, as C.S. Lewis stated it, there are two people, in the types of people in this world. There are those who say to God, Thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says, Thy will be done. The reason one is saved, this is what we call divine monergism, is God chose them before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in, their, in his sight. The reason one is condemned is because they rejected that salvation. Yes, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. He didn't just die for the elect. He died for everyone. But it is only the elect who receive the benefits because the elect haven't rejected it. Those who are condemned are those who refused forgiveness. See, it's like if I gave you $100 and you decided to leave it on the table, the reason you are without $100 isn't because of because you didn't get it. It's not because I didn't sacrifice $100 for you. It's because you refuse to receive it. It is on the person. It is their own fault. They can't, you can't receive something you refuse to take. Or I should say, you can't receive something that you discard or leave behind. Salvation is God's work, a gift. You do nothing. You don't even accept it. But condemnation is your work alone. God has no desire for it. He wants you to be saved. And yes, he does love you. You were created not to be loved, as the movie says. You were created to serve him. Because... And he does indeed love you. He didn't create you to be loved. He loves you because you are created by him. Because you are created by him, you are loved. You are created to serve him in many and various ways. The movie, the theology in the movie... It's ultimately the religion that we want. The movie is very emotionally manipulative, which I think is why it's difficult to go after this movie because it does strike so many emotional chords. And, and frankly, like the devil likes to do, he blends a lot of truth with the falsehood. And the falsehoods are particularly dangerous 
Because the movie should be constantly going to the cross. When it's talking about forgiveness, you should hear about the cross over and over and over. But you can't understand forgiveness without the death of Jesus. And you can't receive it without his death. And yet it's absent in the movie. The only time it's brought up, it is led to horrible heresy. The movie gives us the religion we want. The religion that says that people really are not all that bad. The religion that does not want to hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, meant that God was, that Jesus was abandoned because that means our sin really isn't that bad. It's all about letting us off the hook and making us not so bad. And what it does is it, it focuses very firmly, very strongly upon God's love and throws his judgment out. But our God is a judge. He is just. And he is loving. The movie pits the two against each other. But our God, but they're not at odds. Our God is just. He is loving. They're not opposed to each other. His justice was poured on his son. His love was poured on you. And see, that is it. Condemnation comes. Again, I come back to that. Because somebody says, no, I don't want your love. And when you refuse his love, you only receive his justice. It's like while the guns are firing out, you step in front of the one who's stepping and trying to step in front of you. That makes any sense. This film, this movie, is, like I said, it is very problematic on many levels. And it completely distorts the message of the cross. It loses the message of the cross. And so... It is, it is not a movie that I endorse. It is not a movie that I promote. And the reason is, is because it is so heavily emotionally manipulative. And it's trying to communicate what it thinks to be a truth about God. And yet its truths are overflowing with bad. And it will not lead you to the God of the Bible. If you catch the if you see the God of the Bible in the movie, it's probably because you know your Bible to some degree. And so you should go and make sure you thank your pastors or in your parents or whoever has taught you about the faith for doing doing well. But it is not the God that they're trying to portray. They're intentionally trying to portray a fault this other God. The God that we want, not the true one. 
So it is with that, I leave you. I know that was quite a bit on this movie, and I spent well over an hour going into it, because there is a lot in it. There is a lot of things to talk about. So I go to this question. The fundamental questions in this movie. The problem of evil. God is everywhere. God is all, knows everything. He is all-powerful. And yet evil persists. So how do we deal with that? We've, I think we forget the fact that he is indeed all-knowing. He knows far more than you could ever begin to fathom. He knows everything. He knows every little itty-bitty molecule. He knows exactly how every little electrical signal that is working in my iPad as I record this. He knows every little electrical signal that's going to go through my laptop that allows you to listen to this. He knows every ounce of air. He knows every all how your blood flows, how it doesn't. He knows every beat of your heart. He knows of every mountain, of every person, of every moment, of every hour, of every second, of every day, of every year. He knows it all. From every, in every place, United States, Canada, Africa, Asia, Europe, Australia, he knows all of it, the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. But he knows of this world you cannot even begin to fathom. So instead we look to God's word where it says that God works for the good of all those he has predestined. And so we just look to the cross. And we see that in the cross, which was indeed a moment, of unspeakable evil, because the only person in the history of the world that was truly 100% innocent is Jesus. And Jesus, in his perfect innocence, hung on the cross and suffered and died like a murderer, like a criminal, in an agonizing, painful death beyond measure. But by his death comes the salvation of the entire world. In that moment, which man meant for evil, God used for the salvation of all. For God so did, indeed, so love the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we don't know how God works. We can never begin to understand it. Instead, we simply look to the cross and say, that is how much my God loves me. That is how he, how able he is to bring good out of evil. And so we trust in his word. We trust in him. We look 
to the cross. It is in the cross that the answers to all of the questions in the shack are found. But sadly, the shack never gives those answers. From the quality of a movie, I would say the movie's maybe worthy of five stars out of ten. Five out of ten. So like a 50%. But theologically, maybe a 10%. Because I won't say it has nothing good in it. It has a few good things here and there. But what it misses are huge misses. That without them, without the true God, and without the death of Jesus on the cross, you have nothing. So it's there I leave you and... Um, I'm probably going to sometime soon review the movie The Case for Christ, which was another Christian movie that came out last year that did not get anywhere near the popularity. And the reason I want to review that next is because I don't want you guys to think that I am being, na being mean about movies, Christian movies, just because they're not Lutheran. Because um, that movie, I'm going to say The Case for Christ for the most part, is a pretty decent movie. At least from what I watched it a year ago. So I'm going to review it again, watch it again, and I'll come back to you with a review on it. Uh, so there are good Christian movies out there. Sadly, there's not as many as I'd like to see. But they do exist. The Shack is not one of them. I would not recommend them to any Christian. I would not recommend them because it's a good movie, because it's really not that good of a movie quality-wise, and I wouldn't recommend it theologically because theology, it's a, theologically it's a train wreck. And I'm sure there's things that I missed that other people's might be able to, people might be able to capture for you. So, it's there I leave you, and I encourage you that you go to, go find a good Lutheran church, confessional Lutheran church, and tonight for Good Friday and hear the true message of the cross. And it's there I'm going to leave you with the words of the small catechism. And the reason I'm going to do that is because that is, I think that should give you a good point to to understand and compare to this movie. So this is what we confess. So I'm going to read the second and third article. It says, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, 
purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood, and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own, and live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, right innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. The third article on sanctification. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth, and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. It's there I leave you because I wanted to leave there because those are points of comparison. Compare what we confess as Lutherans. To what is in the shack. And I'm gonna I'm hoping that if you heard in what I've said and compare it with what you know in scripture, you'll see the consistencies are massive. Even notice the one little moment where um Mac asks the son character, he asks him, uh he says, What about religion? He says, Religion, religion is what is it? Sorry, <laughs> I got to look up the quote. I have it right here. Um, religion's too much work. Note, the Bible has no, nothing to say against religion. That, again, is us inserting our worldview into the Bible. In fact, we have in James an uplifting of true religion. That religion isn't bad, unnecessarily. It depends on what your religion is. Secondly... There is this thing where he says, I am not a Christian. Well, of course, Jesus isn't a Christian. He is Christ. See, Christian means little Christ. He can't be little Christ because he is the Christ. Jesus would not say anything bad about being Christian because we are called to be just that. Jesus says, pick up unless if you are to be my disciple you must pick up your cross and follow me that's what it means to be the christian is to bear a cross it means to suffer on a, his account to have the son um kind of speak lowly of the concept of being christian is not biblical. Being a Christian is extremely biblical. It's literate. What the word Christian means, means Christ follower. 
And I know there are people the modern day wants to apologize for that word because it has a nasty connotation. Well, Jesus has a nasty connotation. Are you for many people? Are you going to apologize for him? At some point, we need to stop apologizing for words that are biblical and words that we are to stand behind. Words do indeed have meaning, and there are some that we cannot stand. We can't fall apart and leave behind because someone finds it offensive. Because what we are leaving behind is of absolute importance. To be a Christian means to be a little Christ. To suffer for others. To suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the salvation of others. That means you're to be a witness. Jesus is, a, is your Christ. And you are his mask in this world. To be a witness of that gospel in this world. And that means suffering. And your, goal, your job as a Christian, to be truly a Christian, a little Christ, is to point to the Christ. So with that, I leave you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.
Giants of life they slay, yet willingly he bears.